Katie Kiernan Marble is a seasoned global employment attorney with over 15 years of experience. She's also the managing director at Mod Council, a legal concierge service with six practice areas. As the head of their employment law practice, Katie focuses on processes that bake compliance into day-to-day operations and allow internal teams to reduce the time and energy they need to spend on employment and compliance issues. In this episode, I asked Katie to weigh in on a few headlines, first being the proposed ban on non-competes and what this means for sales organizations. Then we talk about how layoffs are done and how communication is key if companies want to do it right. From there, we discuss what it should look like between sales and legal when drafting commission plans. A particularly important part of the interview is when she gives her perspective on performance management and sales. Every manager should hear what she has to say. Katie, you've been practicing law for about 15 years. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And have you always focused on employment law though? I mean, we're focusing on non-competes and things of that sort. That's why I wanted to talk to you, but has that always been your focus? Pretty much. I started off doing some general litigation, but also doing employment law. And then sort of a year or so into my career, I really focused on employment litigation and also providing employment advice and counsel to employers and continued to do that up until today. Okay, so you 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 operate in an advisory capacity there uh, as a legal consultant, if you will, if if that's how you, you could define that. Yeah. So basically, when an employer is trying to figure out how to navigate an issue, I would come in and try to provide them kind of a risk based assessment of whatever it is they're dealing mm-hmm. with, and try to help them figure out a solution that works best for uh, their risk tolerance. Very good. Okay. Have you seen a lot of? time in the courtroom and doing litigations and things of that sort. That's always seems like the scary part of the law. Yeah, I definitely did more of that earlier in my career, but certainly have um, been involved in litigation as in-house counsel. So typically you're managing outside counsel who are doing the, they're standing in front of the judge, but you're on the back end doing uh, the approach and reviewing, you know, again, risk tolerance and how you want to frame arguments and, and things like that. So it's a different perspective, but it's still the same issues that come up in a courtroom. Right. And there's a lot of uh, you know, areas of employment law that we can get into. I'm sure there's a, a wide dichotomy there. Um, but have you spent a lot of time around or working in, around sales and marketing organizations specifically? Yes. So um, typically with both clients and as in-house counsel, there are are many issues that tend to be um, either specific to a sales and marketing organization or just um, come up more often by virtue of the nature of that type of an organization. And we'll talk through some of that, you know, wage and hour issues, but specific to commissions, um, non-competes tend to be a higher focus when somebody has direct contact and touches with your clients and things of that nature. So it's it's not necessarily a different area of law, but it certainly highlights different parts of the law um, in a way that's just more focused than other parts of a company's organization. Got it. Uh, well, this is, I think, going to be a really enlightening conversation for everyone that's listening in. I purposely reached out to Katie to have this conversation because in the headlines, we've seen that uh, as of, I think it was early January, FTC proposed a ban on non-competes. And, you know, for a lot of us, you, you may not deal with it because of the state that you're in. Uh, as an example, you may not see it as often, uh, as prominently, but I think the stat that I read was one in five employees is subject to a non-compete, which is a lot of people effectively. And the 
let's see here, the trade, uh, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, she was quoted in saying that non-competes block workers from freely switching jobs, depriving them from higher wages and better working conditions, and depriving businesses of talent pool that they need to build and expand. By ending this practice, the FTC proposes that the rule would promote greater dynamism, innovation, and healthy competition. Uh, the proposed rule would ensure that employers can't exploit their outsized bargaining power to limit workers, their opportunities, and stifle the competition. So this is a big issue. You just mentioned it's highly prevalent in, in sales. Um, but there's a couple sides of this. This isn't just the employee and their limiting uh, the limiting factors for them. It's also, it's and you look at the other side of it, I think, is that it's helped propel businesses is as well in the from a competitive standpoint right i mean the landscape of businesses is tough and this is a key factor in helping businesses stay innovative and stay ahead of the competition so it's you know there's two sides of this effectively right and and you've been i would imagine in a variety of scenarios working with companies that have employees that are coming in that are attached to non-competes and then maybe working with organizations that have employees that are held to a non-compete that might be competing with them is so both sides of that pendulum have you seen that both yeah so i would agree there there's a balancing act right so i can understand i've seen both sides so i understand the perspective of both sides um employers put a lot of time energy and money into developing their employees and they don't want to take have that taken to support another company and a competitor in the same space. So there's part of this that's really critical to protecting that sort of employee development and investment. On the other side, you're, you know, there is the, I think a fair argument that employees should be able to work and earn money and support themselves, support their families and not be unreasonably interfered with by their current or former employer. So, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll get into some of the nitty gritty of both of those arguments, but I think when I look at non-compete issues, both of those are valid sides of the argument. It's just finding that balance that allows people to make a living without kind of undercutting the investment that employers are making into their people. Um, which is critical for development of those employees as well. So it's not just that there's a benefit for the employer, there's a benefit for the employee. And if there's no incentive for employers to really invest in their people, um, that hurts everybody. It hurts the market, it hurts individuals, it hurts companies. So there has to be a solution that takes all of that into account. So are you saying that if you know, let's fast forward a, a year or two and this ban goes into effect, uh, employers would withhold, you know, the, the amount of development that they currently do. And there might be, a, you know, that would be stifled effectively, as well as their access to sensitive information that would be stifled as well. So there's a world where em- employees aren't being developed, they're not getting the access that, and opportunities maybe that they would have within the organization because you're cut off due to the non-compete aspects kind of not being enforceable anymore. 
Yeah, I think I would look at it and sort of almost flip it and say it's going to start with the access, right? So if I am a sales rep, I, you know, I may be limited to a very tiny piece of the organization. If there's a concern that if I leave and go somewhere else, I'll a certain territory specifically, just my customers. So it, and by virtue of that, you sort of automatically limit cross-functional learning opportunities. So if I'm a sales rep in a particular line of business, and maybe I want to expand my knowledge and start looking at another line of business, my employer may think twice about that if they feel like, gosh, the more information that I provide to employees, the higher risk I am of them leaving and taking this knowledge with them. Um, Now, there are other ways to protect that, but I'm just talking from the non-compete perspective. Um, And so I don't know that it's necessarily that employers are going to say, oh, I'm not going to develop these employees. I think that's just going to be the fallout from some precautions that could be taken to limit access um, of employees to certain confidential and proprietary information um, of their employer. Fair. So let's say the a scenario plays out and you know I'm in an I'm held to non compete and I go to a competing company mm-hmm. uh, what's kind of the worst case scenario there mm-hmm. so typically what you'll see happen is um, your former employer will say okay Derek has left we're going to do a few things we're going to dig in did he take anything with him that we can tell what was his role how critical was it um, who is the competitor are they a direct competitor um, are they big in the space? Are they up and coming in the space? Um, and we're afraid they're going to use Derek to kind of surpass us in our market. And they're going to make an assessment on how hard they want to push it. What you will typically see when a company decides to enforce a non-compete is first is one of many claims. So they're looking at trade secrets, solicitation, um, contractual issues. So it's not like you get a complaint that just says Derek violated his non-compete. It's long. It's very long. <laughs> it has multiple counts to it. Um, and then generally the new employer is brought in as well, um, particularly if there is that concern of direct market competition and that they feel like the employer is bringing Derek on specifically to hurt us and help them, right? So that mm-hmm. tends to be the mentality. It's it's kind of, it is us versus them when it comes to the, the companies that are involved. Um, worst case, so there's sort of two parts to it. So when you bring a claim for violation of non-compete, first step is to seek a preliminary injunction that says, Derek can't work for the new company because if he does, the uh, harm to the former employer is so great that it can't be measured. And so we just think that while we are working out the final logistics of whether or not Derek is allowed to go work for this company, we're going to, we want, we're asking the court to bench him so that he can't do anything that would impact former employer. And so that makes the new employer a little nervous and says, what do we do? What do we do with Derek? Do we, do we terminate him? We've issued an offer. Do we pay him to do nothing? Like what, what are we doing here? Um, because of that, often you'll see early mediation where the parties will come together. Um, and we can talk through, I think that separately, but that's, that's one option where we say, okay, let's just at least say, can we agree that Derek can work there with some restrictions? If all that fails, and let's say Derek is benched, 
uh, we try a mediation, can't reach a resolution, you're going to continue through litigation, which is time time spent. It takes a long time to get through it. There's discovery. Um, they can go through and and look at what did Derek take information? What did he take? Let's get his phone records. Let's Whoa. look at all of the information um, that's that Derek could have possibly taken and see, can we show the court that Derek took our stuff and brought it to the new company with the intention of taking our clients? And then you're going to get to through litigation and there's going to be, you know, final determination on did Derek violate the non-compete? Are there penalties? What is that going to look like? It can vary. It ranges because it depends. I mean, did 15 of our clients leave with Derek and I can show a direct damage? Uh, were they big clients? Were they small clients? Were they longtime clients? Were they new clients? So it's hard to say, you know, damages can be exponential because it, it varies. And I would say many of these are worked out, as with most litigation matters, prior to getting to kind of a final trial. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's potential for exposure. And that's part of why the new company gets brought in often, because we also know most likely, um, Derek can't afford to pay. Well, <laughs> no, let, let's, no let's, offense, Sarah. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm but. taking. Well, give them some context, though, right? Because we're, yeah. we're not talking about example. A small of example, money. Derek can't pay. You can pay. <laughs> well, I mean, this could be in the millions of dollars. Depending on the size of the book of business, I think theoretically, I don't think you often see that um, because clients become aware, right? They they understand. They they hear or they're directly contacted by counsel saying, you know, we're letting you know he's left. There's a non-compete. Um, and it's hard. It's that, that becomes harder because there's a PR element to that, right? Do you want to be the employer that tells your customers uh, you can't go work with Derek because well, it's not, can you can't expose that because there's an NDA likely in place. So it's not right. like someone's yeah. going to go so on LinkedIn and say, you know, PR issues or mm-hmm. he's left doing, you know, we really, you need to stay working with us. Mm-hmm. And so there are some, Decisions to make. I mean, I think as employers are looking at non-competes in general, not just from a legal perspective, but from a PR perspective, given the state of the world and, mm-hmm. you know, where how people feel about non-competes right now, um, there's a PR element with customers who are, you know, so I'll give an example. It's kind of a simple example. You can't have a non-compete with lawyers because people mm-hmm. have the right to be represented by who they want to be represented by. Um and so, this, so there's some question in some jurisdictions whether that goes to in-house attorneys or not. But I think for the most part, you know, people can secure their counsel. And arguably, if you think of other services, but like personal professional services, the same theory applies. If you're in insurance and you have a broker you like working with and you've worked with forever, it seems a little weird to say, well, you can't work with them now because they've gone from one insurance company to the other. Um, so again, with, it's as not a, fair to that insurance broker either. Right? Insurance not, yeah, uh, it's, agent, it's a difficult situation. But I, as a person, if I'm like, wait, why can't I work with the guy I've worked with for 20 years? This makes no sense. Um, you know, so there's, again, it's so all about- customers get stuck in the middle. Employees get stuck in the middle. Yeah. You know, I, I rattled off the set earlier. I think it's one in five. And uh, the New Yorker put out a, a article about this and said that the majority of people who are impacted by this are regular everyday people. You know, you don't, a non-compete 
you might think of it as being for that big executive, but the vast majority of these are impacting everyday Joes. So we get stuck in the middle in these situations. And, you know, if the new employer decides that, hey, while you seem like you are a great rep at the last company and you could help us here due to this situation now and what's arising, we're not going to move forward. So we're not going to keep you in the bench. We're not going to keep you in the payroll and so that employee effectively is out of that person is out of luck because they've left the last company. They're not going to probably take them back at this point. And, you know, so it's, you know, it's a, I have not been in that situation myself. Um, but I imagine a lot of people out there are looking at that and dealing with it as well. But the thing is, it's also based on what state you're in too, right? Because I'm in California right now. And I think there are no non-competes in California. Right. Yeah, and I I think what you're seeing in many states is exactly to your point, there's an effort to minimize the applicability of non-competes for for folks who are in hourly or lower wage earning roles. Um, But I think you raise a really good point around who this impacts the most, because when a company goes to their former employer and says, we want to impact, we want to enforce this non-compete and we're going to bring your new employer in. New employer has to make a choice. Am I so wedded to this employee that I'm willing to invest time, money, resources to bring them on? Mm -hmm. Typically, that decision is made only in very high level and specialized roles. So you might have, you know, like an account rep or something, and they're going to say, okay, we can probably find another account rep the leader of the sales team for a specialized line of business. A CRO is an example. CRO or a VP, some level. You, you took the company from 5 million to 50 million in three years, and you're going to go work for a competing you know, company in that same sector. You right. Know, and the new they employer might make that is going to say, mm-hmm. I will gladly spend six figures right now to make sure that you can come in and do the same thing for us. Because so there's, we there's wiggle room for certain revenue. people. But the folks that are on the front line, those that are uh, middle class, if you will, or lower, it's, you know, those are the ones that really don't, because they can't afford a lawyer either if they have to, if, it, if there is personal da- things that are uh, they're liable to and so forth. Um, right. And and oftentimes, again, um, if, if you're at a higher level, let's say it's a CRO, the company is often going to cover the cost of attorneys for both. Um, and mm-hmm. if, if you're in a, a lower to mid-level role, even if the company decides, you know, we want you here, we're going to work on this, they still may not cover your legal costs. They might just say, we're going to cover ours. So there's a wide variety of um, options for new employers when they're bringing on folks with non-competes. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that you see a lot is just everyone has a non-compete, like valid or invalid. It's in most people's contracts. Um, well, what's up so- with that? I mean, you, you take a state like California and you're hiring somebody in that state and then you're, you're writing it in. Is it just a scare tactic? I think you know, in California, for the most part, you won't see it or there'll be a carve out that says if you're in California, you, you know, X. I'd say it's it's really those other states where there may be some nuances around what you have to do to present the non-compete. So some states say 
you must present the non-compete to somebody 10, 14 days ahead of their start date, make sure they have a, a opportunity to review it. Other states say you can't give it to them until after they start. Like it, there are all these very specific mechanisms. So because of that, I think when you're talking about a multi-state employer, it's easier to say, here's the non-compete. We know there are these carve-outs. If you make less than X, if you are in California, if you're hourly, and set that out. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's valid in terms of, I gave you 14 days to review this, or I gave it to you at the right time, or it has all of the details that are required for this to be valid. So I think sometimes employers just say, you know, we're going to put it in, and then we'll figure out if we can enforce it later. Yeah. And it's not, I don't think it's an effort to be disingenuous, to be honest. I think it's just an effort to streamline the hiring process in a world where non-compete legislation is so varied state by state. You don't always have an HR team or a legal team okay. that can manage that. So it's a just in case. It's a just in case. It's there. It's a backup. But you may know that, okay, not everyone's going to have a valid non-compete because we didn't hit all the right boxes when we were hiring this person. Fair. Okay. Well, and, and and last question on this topic, just for those uh, uh, listening, can you clarify the difference be- between a, a non-solicitation and a non-compete? Yeah. So non-compete provision says that if I'm working for a company, I cannot go and work for a competitor in the same space for a period of you know six, twelve. Usually, the higher end is twenty-four months, um, and there's really no carve out. It doesn't say, oh, you can't go as long as you, or you can go as long as you're not doing the same type of work. It just says, nope, if we have a competitor, you can't go work for them. Hmm. Non-solicitation provisions are a bit more detailed and nuanced. So um, you might have a customer non-solicitation that says you cannot um, solicit or receive business from any of our customers that you worked with within the year prior to your departure, something like that. But basically, it kind of goes back to the beginning of it's protecting our customer base and saying, you know, maybe we don't have a non-compete and you can go work for a competitor, but you can't touch our customers for a certain period of time. Um, another type of non-solicitation is an employee non-solicitation provision saying you can't get our, take our employees away from us. So you can't go use our people to start up a new sales team at a competitor within a certain period um, after you leave. So these are pretty common, right? Those are pretty common. And I say California being the exception, um, they're generally enforceable because they're more narrowly tailored to protecting the employer's interest, which is what kind of one of the legal terms you see thrown around about this that says, okay, if you want to go work for a competitor, fine, just leave us alone. And courts say, okay, that's fair. You can still go work. Um, And, you know, in most places, it's not, you can go find new clients, you can build business, you just can't bring your book over. Um, The example I used earlier was the territory example. So if you are a local market rep in Austin, as an example, and you're going to go work for a direct competitor with, and there's no non-compete, but there's a non-solicitation in place, you might, it's okay that you go and work in, I don't know, the Pac West somewhere, um, mm-hmm. but so you're not selling the same customers. That is, is that a provision that would be, okay, he can go work, but he just can't, he's not competing with us directly any longer. 
Yeah. And I think theoretically, if there's no non-compete, you could still sell in Austin, but you'd have to sell to new customers. You'd have to cultivate and almost start over your sales um, approach to bring Mm -hmm. in customers that you didn't touch. Um, Where it gets a little tricky is when you're in the same market, often your customers come to you and you have to be um, really mindful of saying, you know, I'm sorry. I'm really thrilled that you enjoyed working with me, but love to work with you. I but can't however, accept your business at this time. Thank you. you call me back um, in 364 days. Yeah, maybe don't say that, but yeah, that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll call you back. Don't call me. I'll call you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because this this conversation might get tapped. They might pull this text message. They might pull this email because, like you mentioned, the subpoenas get pulled. This that level of detail and scrutiny that they go to. That's uh, absolutely. And yeah. you want to be able to show you didn't re- you, not not even necessarily that you didn't respond. I mean, that's fine. But also, it's it is helpful to say, look, here are the text messages where I said, "I'm sorry, I can't accept your business right now." Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that insight. I want to spend a little bit more time with you on a couple other issues that are highly pertinent to sales organizations. And so if I'm a revenue leader or if I'm a salesperson, I think, you know, e- either whether individual contributor or leader, this is uh, some valuable insight as well. Uh, so in rapid fire, I want to go down layoffs, commission plans and performance management with you in the last couple of minutes that we have. Okay. Um, so in, from a layoffs perspective, give us a your perspective, if you can, on, on, on the issues that we're seeing in, in the headlines, right? There's a lot of layoffs happening right now. What's the thought process that goes into uh, letting people, because I think the issue that we're hearing most often in the headlines is the lack of communication, the way that the layoffs are being handled. We know that layoffs are a fact of business, but it's the manner in which organizations are going about it. And so I, first of all, have you, um, or can you say, have you been part of a, a layoff? And have you helped advise organizations through that process? Yes. Yeah, so I've done that throughout my career. Unfortunately, there, there are times when it is happening more often uh, than others. And I think it's fair that we are in one of those times right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Communication is so critical when it comes to a reduction in force. Um, and I, you know, what you tend to see happen is I think it's just a, a nature of cyclical markets, right? Things are great. Things are great. We spend money. We can have more people. We can have a bigger sales team because we can afford it. And then as the market contracts, um, just naturally, if you're making less money as a company, you can't afford as many people. So what you tend to see um, is that there's a... I don't know if directive is the right word, but, you know, you get the note from finance, hey, you know, we really need to cut budget by 10%. Um, And then you see leadership across the org looking at, um, can I reduce layers in my org and kind of remove some of those like mid-level managers? Um, If my, if I have 10 account executives, can I get by with seven? So you start to see these decisions that are intended to be really strategic. Term and often I known think as flattening, I believe. Flattening the organization, reducing headcount. And I think what people don't often see, because I don't think communication is always for, forefront of mind when people are doing these riffs, is that level of thought that typically goes into it. I'm not going to say every company does it well, right. but the companies that I have worked with, you know, they I start with, you know, what is your mandate from finance? What is your process? 
how are you talking to your managers about their selections? Obviously, we're looking at it and making sure people aren't making decisions that are discriminatory and are basing them on legitimate business need. And so you kind of go through this very detailed and I mean, it's a long process, even if it's done quickly, it's people are in meetings for hours upon hours, looking at almost every name. Um, it can, it's very tedious. Um, and then I think the part that often um, gets missed is sort of how do you communicate that? I think what happens is if you have a smaller reduction, it's easier to have individual conversations and say, you know, kind of have your HR team plan how to have conversations with people as opposed to doing, you know, like group calls um, or emails. And I Black think messages at 3 a.m. Yeah. Getting locked out of your email, whatever, yeah. whatever it is, all those horror stories that we're hearing right now. Um you know, I think the right way to do it is when you start at the beginning is having somebody who's focused on comms, right? And starting to think through, how are we going to message this to people? Maybe we can't sit down with every single person because we're doing a 10% reduction. It's a thousand people and we don't know how to have those conversations, but figuring out, okay, if we do a town hall, if we have to do it, how do we message this so it's not just you don't have email, you're laid off by, because it doesn't matter how thoughtful you were in at the outset and why you made the decisions. If no one knows that, and they're just seeing that they no longer have access to the job that they've been working at for 10 years, Mm. everyone's going to have a bad taste in their mouth. So I think the communications is a huge part. I mean, there's all sorts of compliance issues. I think we saw with Twitter publicly, there were questions about whether they complied with the WARN Act, which requires certain notifications, depending on the size and location of employees who were terminated. Obviously, there are discrimination rules that have to be um, accounted for. U.S. doesn't have mandatory severance, but if you're looking outside of the U.S., there are local requirements on notice periods and severance payments. Inside the U.S., if you have a severance policy, you have to abide by it. So there are all sorts of compliance issues that go along with that. But I will say my personal opinion is none of that matters as much as how you communicate to the employees what's happening and why. Um, If they feel like you're treating them humanely, you'll see it. And I think you see it on LinkedIn. I've seen some companies where... You know, their employees are like, I'm devastated to announce that I have been laid off, but I understand the decision. I still love this company and I appreciate that they treated me in yeah, an appropriate out manner. their leaders and the way they handled it. Yeah. And that's that's huge PR yeah. bump um, for the company. And you look at the companies who are doing the opposite and they're getting the you know, hugely negative attention right, right now. Right. Well, the thought process I want to ask about quickly on this, and we'll move to uh, commission plans next, is there's a theory, I think, amongst most uh, employees when these things happen, or at least when they're surprised by it, is that the lack of communication is due to the fact that there's a, a risk in attrition and lack of productivity. If we tell them this is coming, they're going to stop working, they're going to leave. And so is can you dispel that or can you affirm that to any degree? So what I have seen is that when it's done right, you minimize those risks of attrition. So if you say, okay, we had to lay off 10% of our workforce today, and you do a town hall with your CEO, 
where they come in and they say, here's what's happening in the market. Here's how it's impacting our company. This is why we made the decision. And we were very strategic in how we selected roles who would depart and who would remain because we see our business doing X in the next two years. And each and every person who is in this room or on this call is critical to us achieving that goal. That type of communication where you explain what you did, how you came to the conclusion, and what you're doing next to make sure that the people in the room are safe. Obviously, you can't guarantee anything, but if you can show that you've put thought into the future of the business and the future of those employees, you don't see the kind of attrition you do when you see um, 10% of our workforce was terminated yesterday. We don't know why. We don't even know if they're done. Um, that's when you see the increase in attrition from people who are just terrified about what's happening at their job. Right. Like I'm next. Yeah. In or potentially. So they're looking. Right? Everyone's right. looking and they're not and doing even if I, job. <laughs> even if my boss is telling me everything's okay, I'm still looking. The writing's Absolutely. on the wall, as they say. Yeah. So. And you're losing productivity in the meantime. Yeah, I was listening to an interview where uh, this person had in their studies an MBA focused primarily on workforce reductions and the horror stories, the best practices, and they were citing examples of where it worked and where it didn't. And the key learning that they shared was that it's when you're providing services or support to those. So it's the communication combined with additional support for landing, right? So Mm -hmm. whether there's job search, and I know big organizations are really good about this a lot of times. I was at Dell and they uh, went from public to private and they offered some some options in that process of, you know, restructuring the organization. And they were very communicative about it. um, And they provided options and support to employees that were looking at, you know, making that change in their career. So it sounds like, the communications absolutely create, and I would imagine you'd agree with that aspect too. Like if you can provide services and help people find that next thing, as opposed to just kind of being a talking head about it and saying, Hey, hit me up. If you want to find people, I know good people. Cause that's, it's great that, you know, leaders put that out there, but it's another thing to actually put programs in place that help, you know, operationalize that intent. Would you agree? Yeah, there are a number of vendors that employers mm-hmm. will work with at the same at the time of a reduction to, that can offer, you know, resume review, career counseling, um, and it's a fairly easy and it's not cheap, but it's not expensive, you know, added benefit that you can provide to somebody on the way out to help them have a leg up as they're getting into their next role, and I think that is hugely appreciated as well. Right. So PR bump from that standpoint, from that investment. And then it's also, hey, you know what, at some point you're going to come out of this and you might want to bring those people back. So, you know, the way you leave, the way you you, you walk them out is says a lot about the probability of them coming back for you. Absolutely. So commission plans quickly talk to me about the importance of collaboration between legal and the sales organization when they're going through these commission plan restructuring. I mean, where it's February right now. And I imagine a lot of people are just issuing out their comp plans for, you know, 2023 uh, for their sales organizations. If not, they just recently did. Mm-hmm. What does that process look like or what should it look like between sales and, and legal? It's a, it's an incredibly important collaboration. So I've drafted a number of sales plans, but I am a lawyer. You know, I'm not a salesperson. I can't sit there and say, this is how your comp plan should be designed to drive certain behaviors. So 
I can say, okay, if that's how you want to pay people, here's how we're going to write it up. So when I do a comp plan, I rely heavily on the sales team to explain to me, this is our comp model for variable compensation, and this is why we're doing it that way. Um, so it is, it's one where I feel like neither can do it without the other, um, because I know, you know, what's, what's, what are the critical parts of a comp plan? You know, we obviously have to decide, um, sorry, define when comp is earned, when it might be forfeited, when is it paid? Uh, what do we do in the case of overpayment? So, you know, those logistics and the legalities around that, you really want your legal team to focus on so that your comp team is freed up to say, what are the behaviors that we need to drive and how does our compensation model support that? And then you put those two pieces together and you have your comp plan. Um, I'm a huge believer that comp plans should be as simple as possible say, while, yeah. <laughs> while also driving behavior. That's tough, uh, though. It's easier said than, than done, right? It's easier said than done. And I will say, I think no matter how many times I draft a comp plan, somebody comes back with some off the wall <laughs> question and we're all looking at. The oh, you mean like the going, person has to sign off on it? Like, or the course, or yeah, they you know, yeah. you've signed it and you're nine months through the year and someone says, well, what about this? I think I'm owed more because, and we're all looking at each other. So I always laugh and say your comp plan should cover like 90% of the questions that are going to come in because mm-hmm. you will never be able to factor everything all in. of the questions. And if you try to do that and address everything, nobody um, gets a comp plan. <laughs> nobody gets a comp plan. It's wildly confusing. Mm-hmm. Right. And at some point you just have to say, we know we're going to get some weird requests this year to pay more under the comp plan. And then we'll just deal with it when it comes in. <laughs> yeah. That's the, the constant discussion. I was speaking to um, a lecturer from Harvard about, the idea of taking salespeople off of commission plans. Mm. I, I heard another author talk about this and I just wanted to kind of bounce it off and get his perspective on it. Would that work? You know, would we still be able to drive the behavior that we need to in this role, uh, you know, as, as customer facing and, and with quotas and revenue expectations. And so if we got rid of quotas and got rid of commission plans altogether and we just put them on flat salary, mm-hmm. could we still move the needle? It's Have an you ever seen that, or is that? I've actually never seen it. It's an interesting concept, and the part of me that spent far too much time digging into comp plans, mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting perspective. Um, I would love to know. I don't know. I'm not a proponent of it whatsoever. Yeah. I, it's just a, it's a, it's an issue. You know, we're always trying to get better and get more productivity. And you know, there's a theory, an operating theory out there that is saying that we're holding ourselves captive to these short-term targets mm-hmm. and these commission plans and these sorts of things. And then you think about the aspect of how most comp commission plans are sell more, make more oriented, mm-hmm. and they don't factor in quality so much. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that component of in comp plans that you, that you've helped write and authorize as look, there's a sell more here, but you have to hit these kind of quality matrix. When you think about the cost of the business and certain types of customers and and these sorts of things, do you see the qualitative aspects at all? I do. I think you're seeing more of a focus on retention um, Mm. and also just quality of lead and, you know, and having carve outs for, it's great that you brought somebody in, but if they 
drop out after a month, we have to be able to plan for that. Um, I, I would presume that with the idea of a salaried salesperson, your you know your biggest objection is just going to be, well, what if they don't do their job very well, and then we're spending a ton of money after nothing. Um, my guess is that mentality would foresaw like ninety five percent of companies from trying it. Um, so I'd be curious if there's, you know, any case kind of research on yeah. case studies on those few companies to that are willing to be it. the ones to try it out and let it, let the rest of us know how it goes. <laughs> it, it, some, someone's going to test it out first, but it's not going to be me. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I think if you look at, you know, your finance teams and your payroll teams, they would love that, right? How much time and energy does your <laughs> finance lives a lot easier. spend every month, yeah, every operation. quarter? calculating, arguing with people, reconciling, clawbacks. Yeah. Clawing, but it's, it's a, it's a very hard program to manage administratively, no matter how well it's designed. It's just a lot of time and energy. It's another, another plug for maybe to, to explore it. Uh, We'll have to dig into it more. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to bring us home. Um, Last topic is performance management. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the conversations that I have with, with, with other consultants or even leaders, is around this topic, obviously, and that's coaching uh, underperformers um, and the legalities around that specifically. So there's a couple elements here. You have managers who aren't always or are very rarely versed in employment law. Mm -hmm. And unless you've worked for a large organization, often that's just not training that you get. So understanding how to manage salespeople in different states becomes, I think, a, a point of you know, clarity. Is there any advice that you would give a new manager who has direct reports in multiple states? Like what would be that top of mind thing that you would tell that person? Yeah, I I think you kind of really framed it up nicely that if your company doesn't have a broader performance management program, managers are on their own. And as an employment lawyer, when you have managers doing the same type of work differently when it comes to management, it's, it's a nightmare. So when it, you know, performance management is one of those things where there's not a lot of laws around it, right? As long as you're doing it appropriately, you're not being discriminatory and and singling people out. You can manage people in the U S the way that you think is appropriate. So I think the number one thing is consistency. So if I have six sales reps, I need to hold them accountable to the same targets if they if they have all the same targets, you know, they and and regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, it's that consistency is key. Um, and so I think, you know, you mentioned the, the riffs earlier, I'll, I'll say anecdotally, what you often hear is it comes time to re- make a decision around a reduction and a manager will say, well, I pick this person because they're a low performer. And then my first question is, okay, tell me more. Uh, have you ever written them up? No. Um, can you show me where they compare to your other direct reports? And they're like in the middle. Um, okay. Have you talked to this person about performance? No, but they're definitely the lowest performer. And I'm like, well, you don't have anything other than these metrics. They're not the lowest performer. So we're, we can't pick them for that reason. Um, maybe there's a skill set gap. And as we're looking at kind of the new direction of the company, there's something else, but um, we're not using performance as a selection criteria if you've never managed performance. 
So I think that's where it comes becomes really critical. Or also you'll see even outside of the context of a reduction in force, manager will come to HR and say, I'm ready to terminate so-and-so. And like, well, did you talk to them about their performance? Um, and this is where, you know, sometimes in my role, I have to go beyond legalities. Even if it's legal, we're an at-will uh, country for the most part, except for Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can make employment decisions in a non-discriminatory way based on anything. Um, but is it fair? Right. So that's my question is, so you're, you want to fire somebody because of performance, but you've never told them they were a low performer. You've never given them tools to improve. Uh, you've not given them time or an opportunity to improve. Why are we going right to termination? And it goes to, you know, some degree of legality, but it's mostly, you know, what kind of employer do you want to be? What do you want your workplace culture to look like? Um, so I, I think performance management is one of those skills that is just underrated right. um, and people don't understand the importance of it. And I think in sales, it's someone's, you're probably describing it. It's almost easier to measure. Um, if somebody, I'm a lawyer, right? I can give advice. Some people will agree with it. Some people will disagree. It's a little more subjective. Okay. It depends on your risk tolerance. If someone's super, super conservative and their legal risk tolerance, they might not like working with me because I'm going to tell them, well, maybe you can take a risk here. And they're going to say, she's a terrible lawyer. She's too risky. So it's right? nuanced. Okay. It's nuanced. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm managing a sales team and everyone has a million dollar target, And I can say, okay, I have three members of my team that are above a million. I have two that are like 850, but they have really strong pipeline. And I have one who's at 100 and no pipeline. Objectively, I know that I have one person who's not performing well. So I can track that. I can give tools and then I can measure improvement. Um, So from that perspective, I'm always surprised that sometimes sales orgs don't do as much on performance management because from so my view me, i'm like this is the word where it's easiest <laughs> exactly <Just do> <laughs> you took the word out. Like, it's so much easier for you because it's right there in front of you a lot of times but it's not always performance based there's also the issue of the the toxic top player right there's there's that aspect of it too where they aren't good for the culture fit if you will they're alienating the organization they're not adhering to uh, the the expectations in the business like updating their crm by a certain point or attending mm-hmm. meetings or, or what have you and so i mean there, you can call it insubordination i guess mm-hmm. but it's maybe not truly that it's just someone who's a maverick and it, it's hard to have that conversation time to time and it's not you know i don't think it's a, a big issue that we see but having the conversations, whether someone's underperforming or they're a top performer performing well and having behavior issues, we still don't have the conversation. And I think one of the reasons as who spent most of my career as a frontline manager is because we're scared to get in trouble. We're Mm -hmm. scared to, uh, the employee has a lot of rights and is protected. And if we approach that issue incorrectly, it's, and it's uncomfortable. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the hardest part of the job. And, um, you know, we're just not really trained for that. You know, most of us as sales leaders have come up being really good at sales. And like I said before, it's just, that's that gap in, in the training. It doesn't, you know, schools don't, you know, unless you studied business administration, um, you might get some, some 
lessons there. But my point is, it's just we're not prepared for the conversation. We're scared to get in trouble and, and these sorts of things. And we don't have a legal context of like that risk tolerance you're talking about. I think as a frontline leader who's scared about, you know, worried about my job and providing for my family, I'm going to err on the side of caution and, you know, maybe just avoid that conversation a little bit longer than, than I should, yeah. which we know isn't, isn't necessarily good for the business. No, I think it's, I do think that it's relatively common. It's sort of the rock star salesperson who has behavioral issues. I've seen it more often than I would like mm-hmm. to admit. Um, I think part of it too is if you're the manager, right? And you're sales driven, you are a sales driven manager, which is why you're in that role. And you look at your team and let's say using my six person team advantage example, and I have that one low performer who's you know, 900,000 off target. Then I have this rock star who's triple target. When I go to my manager and I show my team's effort, I'm still above target because I have one person carrying a huge portion of my team's quota. And I don't want to upset that person because now as the manager, my performance is being measured on the rock star who is difficult. And I don't want to rock the boat because of that. So I, I think, again, it's culture. It's empowering managers to say the way we treat each other in the workplace is more important than how much we sell. Because if we are intimidating other people or being disrespectful, potentially discriminating against other people, our employment culture has to be that I don't care how good you are, that's unacceptable. Because what's going to happen is you'll, as an organization, you'll terminate five other people for making inappropriate comments, for discriminating, being biased, but you've kept this one guy and everyone else is going to say girl. he's yeah. discriminating. Yeah. Sorry, or girl, or girl. Um, <laughs> They're just scared of getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah, scared of getting in trouble. Um, this one person is going to, you know, they're going to say, why am, why is this person allowed to treat me like this? Right. Oh, just because it. he or she or they is a operating by a different set of standards. Now because, right. Yeah. The the world is different for this person and that's not okay. And that's ingrained into the culture of sales over time because we've seen it time and time again, where the sales culture that I grew up in is that you take Friday off to go golfing because you're so mm-hmm. above quota. You know, when your manager says you need to be in a sales meeting, it's like, I don't have to be in that. That, that was bred into us. And that was the, mm-hmm. part of the reward mechanism. And when you got above quotas, you got treated special. And so we're in a new day and age now. Uh, Key, this has been tremendously enlightening. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners have as well. Where do you want to point people to to connect with you or learn more about uh, what you're into? Absolutely. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Katie Kiernan Marble. um, And I also um, I'm managing director of global employment law at Mod Council, which is a concierge law firm with six practice groups um, outside. And so we're not just employment law, but that's my focus. Mm. And if people want to get more information about the work that we do, they can find us online at modcouncil.com. You've been listening to the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you enjoyed the interview and would like to support the show, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or on Spotify. Please also consider following our LinkedIn page. If you're an industry expert or if you know an industry expert that should be on the show, message us on LinkedIn at the Sales Consultant Podcast.